Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming to church on July 4th. I do appreciate that. And, um, and I hope you enjoy uh, the, the nation's birthday today and do some, something fun. And don't light yourself on fire while you're lighting other things on fire. That's my advice for you. All right, we're going to move on from practical advice. Uh, our scripture this morning comes from Mark, uh, the end of Mark 11 and the beginning of Mark 12. We're continuing our journey through the gospel of Mark for a few more weeks. So let's uh, silence ourselves for a moment and prepare ourselves to hear the scripture together. Now hear a reading from Mark 11, 27 to 12, 12. They came again to Jerusalem. While Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the experts in the law, and the elders came up to him and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? Well, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from people? Answer me. They discussed with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from people, well, they feared the crowd for they all considered John to be truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Well, then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it, dug a pit for its wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went on a journey. At harvest time, he sent his slave to the tenants to collect from them his portion of the crop. But those tenants seized his slave, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another slave to them again. This one they struck on the head and treated outrageously. He sent another, and that one they killed. This happened to many others, some of whom were beaten, others were killed. He had one left, his one dear son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, Don't respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw his body out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, they wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowd because they realized that he told this parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Father, in this moment, speak to us about your word.
Lord, may it be that in the preaching of the word, we would be faithful to the scriptures and that we would enter into it, Lord. We have a choice at this moment, either to hear Jesus rebuking Pharisees and experts in the law and stay away from it, or to hear Jesus challenging us and be transformed by it. By your Spirit, let us choose the latter. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it was only just now as we were reading it out loud that to me that, uh, that like during and before and during the, the Revolutionary War, this might be a parable that the British might really like uh, against the, uh, you know, the Americans. You know, they've seized, the tenants have seized the vineyard and we need to go get it back. But that's not how I'm going to preach it. Um, <laughs> You know, we're, we are Americans, so we're okay. Um, so what is this passage actually about? Uh, this passage is about Jesus's authority and his opponents and our greed. That's what it, it's about. Jesus's authority and his opponents and our greed. So I want to give you the big picture first of what's going on here. Uh, in the in the scriptures, and then we'll narrow in on greed. So you have a little bit of time to warm up to the idea that I'm about to challenge greed in your own heart. Okay, so big picture. Um, where are we? This is Jesus week in Jerusalem. This is his, maybe his third day in Jerusalem. This is the day after he's gone into the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and those who are selling things and made a big scene. And then he left and went and spent the night in Bethany. And now he's come back and he's entered back into the temple. So it makes sense that all of the, you know, employees of the temple would say, what gives you the right to do what you did yesterday? Who are you? Who do you think you are? That's what they're asking. By what authority are you doing these things? The question makes sense. All right? But Jesus' response to them exposes the reality that they are actually greedy for people's devotion and they are unwilling to admit a truth that might turn the people against them. In fact, after Jesus does the whole thing about John the Baptist, and, and you, you know, we get the inside scoop of why they hem and haw and why they don't answer, Jesus seems a little bit defiant when he says, fine, neither, if you tell me, then I won't tell you, right? It's, he seems a little um, stubborn there. But then he immediately tells a story by which he answers their question. Like, we kind of miss that fact. Uh, we think, oh, Jesus just refusing to answer. But then he goes right into this story about the vineyard and the tenants, and it's an answer to the question, by what authority are you doing these things? The, the point of that story is actually fairly straightforward. It features a vineyard, which over the, basically the whole Old Testament is the symbol for Israel, the people of God, sometimes 
the temple is represented in the vineyard. And, you know, even it, he goes into details. This vineyard has a wall built around it. You imagine the wall that Nehemiah built around Jerusalem or the great stones of the temple. The tenants are Israel's leaders, those people who have been charged with care for the people, and the owner is God himself. Like the, the meaning of the parable is pretty straightforward in that regard. So Jesus clearly means for himself to be associated with the son at the end. I, I, that, I think that's pretty obvious. He probably means that the, the slaves that the owner has sent before were all of the prophets who challenged and rebuked and, and called um, uh, Israel's leaders to account. So the answer to their question about by whose authority are you doing these things is actually pretty obvious. He tells this story and says, it's God's authority. I am here on a mission from God. I have been sent by God to do this. What's a little less straightforward is the moral to the story that Jesus gives. He tells this story, and then he says, haven't you read the scripture? And then he quotes these scriptures. He quotes Psalm 118 about the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's, that's the scripture that he quotes it's out of Psalm 118. Why, why does he go to that? Now, all of these people are, are experts in the law. They, they are fluent, of course, in Hebrew, the same Hebrew that the Old Testament is written in. And there may be a word play going on. The word for, for son is ben, all right? And the word for stone is eben, all right? So maybe there's a little bit of poetic wordplay going on, the sun that, you know, gets rejected in the story, and then the stone the builders rejected. Yeah, I think that's a little bit, that, that gives us a hint of what we should look for. But Jesus, Jesus is telling a bigger story here when he quotes that. Psalm 118 is really important for this last week in Jerusalem. In fact, on Palm Sunday, when Jesus comes in with the parade and they're, they're shouting Hosanna, they keep quoting Psalm 118, all of the people. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is this climactic moment in the book of Psalms. The Psalms, you know, is a kind of collection of prayers and songs, right? It's the great prayer book of the Bible, but it also tells a story. Psalm 2 is this promise about, about the Son, the anointed Son, who's the great King in all the nations of the world. When he comes to his, you know, when he comes into his power, all the nations of the world will, will kiss his feet and bless him. It's this great promise. And in Psalm 118, that King is finally arriving at the temple, and everyone is celebrating. They're, they can't believe it. They're so excited. He's finally there. And they're even talking about the way God works in Israel's history. The stone the builders rejected has become the most important stone in the building. And that's the story that the people of God love throughout the Bible. 
They, they look at all of the great figures in their story and they say, these are all unlikely heroes. I mean, think of Abraham. Abraham is sort of known for his great faith. But read the story of Abraham. This is a guy who, who lies twice saying his wife is actually his sister to save his own neck. This is the guy who hears the promise about having a child with his wife Sarah, and then when it doesn't happen for a while, he, he has a child with another woman. You know, this Abraham, for the most part, has a great lack of faith. He's an unlikely stone. Think of, think of Moses. Moses, who is a fugitive from the law, fleeing, separating himself from his people. He is alone on a mountain when he meets God and God says, you need to go back. And Moses says, choose somebody else, please. That, these are unlikely heroes, but the, the main person Psalm 118 is talking about is David. The stone the builders rejected. Now you may or may not know how David became king, the prophet Samuel came to David's father and said, one of your sons is going to be the king. And he inspected each son. And Jesse, David's father, brings, you know, all his oldest sons forward. They're, they're big, tall, strong, tan, you know, they're, they're confident, they're eloquent, they're great warriors. And, and Samuel looks at each one of them and says, no, 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 this, this is, is there anyone else? Do you, and Jesse's like, well, oh, I do have one other son, but it couldn't possibly be him. And David's out in the field, right? The stone the builders rejected has become the most important person in the kingdom of Israel, has become the cornerstone. And Psalm 118 is celebrating that fact. That's the big story. And when he arrives in the temple, when the son of David arrives, everyone blesses the Lord, celebrates. They have a party. That's how it's supposed to play out. And that's how Jesus' week in Jerusalem started. But it's not playing out that way now. Now they're saying, who do you think you are? <laughs> what? There, that's a painful irony. The very people who are supposed to be maintaining and preserving the house for the master of the house to appear are rejecting the master when he shows up. They were hired stewards. But Jesus, in, in several different ways, says, you have taken control of somebody else's property and are using it for your own ends. You are defying the one who gave it to you in the first place. In short, greed has overtaken you. That's what Jesus is saying. Twice in our passage, Jesus or the, or the passage exposes the fact that they are desperate for the people's devotion, right? They won't say something that will turn the people away from them. They are greedy for the power that they have. All right, I think we sort of implicitly understand greed. I could give you a thousand different examples from world history or, or leaders of, develop, of developing nations who tax their people heavily and then ship all of that money to an offshore account. I could talk about CEOs cutting wages in their companies the same years they receive multi-million dollar bonuses. We could wallow in the greed that caused the 2008 financial crisis. 
I could tell all of those stories. I could tell you 10 stories from how I behaved this week. Or if I knew enough about your life, I could tell you stories about how you behaved this week. But because Jesus tells a story about a vineyard, I want to give you a real-life example of greed in the case of a vineyard. It's from the Bible, but this is a real story. It's not a parable. I'm talking about King Ahab. This is a real story. Ahab was an Israelite king, and the way the Bible talks about him, he was basically the worst. <laughs> he was terrible. He, he, uh, he married this uh, woman, this Sidonian woman who worshipped other gods, Baal, and he built a temple to her god, and basically she ran the show, and she was a bloodthirsty, vindictive queen. They were in this constant battle with the prophet Elijah, and there's all these wild stories and scenes where, where Elijah is sort of uh, competing with uh, the prophets of Baal in, in order to show which God is you know, more powerful. But late into that story, at a low point in Ahab's reign, we just happen upon Ahab when he notices that the property just next to his royal property is this lovely vineyard. It belongs to a man, a man named Naboth. And he wants it. He wants it for himself. So first he goes to Naboth and says, hey, I'll, I'll buy this from you. I'll, you know, I'll replace it. I'll give you some of the other royal lands that I don't want as much as your land. Naboth says, hey, this is, this is the land that was apportioned to me and my family by God himself when Joshua divided up the land. It's like faithfulness to God is why I need to keep this land. And Ahab is mad and angry. And so he goes and pouts at home and his wife Jezebel says, don't worry, I'll get that land for you. She has Naboth framed for a crime he doesn't commit and he's stoned to death like within days. And they go and they claim his land. Elijah shows up and says, do you guys really think you'll get away with this? In fact, on this very vineyard, both of your blood will be, will be spilled. Dogs will eat your bodies. God is angry at their greed. And their greed renders them equally naive as the tenants of the land in Jesus' story, right? Like, how did somebody think that they could get away with that? That's easy for us to do when we're looking at someone else. The thing about greed, the tricky thing about greed is we kind of know what it is. We, we actually revel in examples of greed. You know why? They make us feel better about ourselves. They do. The, the moment that little tickle in your brain says, you know, I might be dealing with a bit of greed in this situation. All you need is one person who's a jerk and has more than you. That's all, that's all you need to feel better. Like, oh, thank goodness. Tell me another story of a cruel dictator right? That way, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not them. I'm not like that. It, it is very easy, even relieving, to identify greed in other people. It's very difficult to identify in ourselves. 
The Apostle Paul in the letter to the Colossians offers a brutal definition of greed. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you too will be revealed in glory with him. So put to death whatever in your nature belongs to the earth, sexual immorality, impurity, shameful passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. That's how Paul defines greed. Greed, which is idolatry. Greed is that when we want something that so badly that it becomes the center of our attention. I'm not sure in all of literature there's a greater meditation on greed than, big surprise, the Lord of the Rings. All right. I don't know if there's a better meditation on greed. Think about what the, the ring of power, those of you who know the story, if you don't, I feel a little sad for you and I would recommend you go watch the movies. Um, if you don't know it, it's the story, well, I won't give you the plot. Um, just go, go watch it. So there's this ring of power and everyone who possesses the ring becomes obsessed with it. When they wear it, when they own it, it starts to take over their life. As our first introduction to the ring in The Lord of the Rings, you know, we you, we learned about the ring in The Hobbit, but that's another story. Um, you, uh, the wizard Gandalf comes to Bilbo and says, this ring is really dangerous, I need it, you know, and, and asks Bilbo to give it. Bilbo doesn't want to give it, it's mine, I want it. And finally, Gandalf convinces him. And so Bilbo agrees, and he gets up to leave. Fine, you can have the ring, I'm out of here. And as he's at the door, Gandalf stops him. The ring is still in your pocket, Bilbo. He still can't part with it. And, and at the very end of the story, after Bilbo's nephew Frodo has taken the ring all the way to the fires of Mount Doom and risked his very life, he's nearly died a hundred different times, and there he is, ready to cast the ring into the fire. And the ring finally flexes its muscle in Frodo's heart. The ring is mine, Frodo says. He's becoming Gollum, who followed the ring all the way. Gollum, who the, the ring sent mad. Gollum, who the ring turned insane. Gollum loves and he hates the ring. He wants it. His precious. He needs it. The ring becomes an idol. Those who own it are willing to destroy their own selves and anything else in order to have it. If greed is idolatry, we need to understand what an idol is. I think Tim Keller's phrase is great. An idol is a counterfeit God. It's a counterfeit God. Anything can become a counterfeit God. And so how do you know? How do you know that something has reached that level? It's a lot like an addiction in our lives. An idol is anything that if you lost it, if it was taken from you, you would wonder if life was worth living after that. I, I, I'm talking about things that we know are dangerous for us and things that we really rightfully love. I'm talking about your job and your money and, and, and your reputation. I'm talking about your family as much as I'm talking about all, all sorts of addictions. That thing that, if it's taken from you, 
you would wonder if you should even go on with your life. Which one thing would you feel obligated to protect even at the cost of your own soul? Which one thing would you naively attack the person who's coming and saying, hey, the owner is asking for it now in your life? There may be more than one thing. Greed is simply the muscle of idolatry. Once something becomes an idol, we just need to get more and more of it. Okay, so Jesus' parable teaches us in the vineyard that we all suffer from this form of greed in which something is entrusted to our care but not given to us, and we treat it like it belongs to us. We've been asked to be a steward of something, and we decide we want to be the owner of it. That's what greed does. That's the transformation greed has in our life. So what's the remedy? What do we do when that type of greed is exposed? Well, I I see three options. And I think many of us choose the first one. We could respond like the tenants in the story. We could ignore the owner aggressively if necessary and treat the thing as our own. How many things in your life are you sure that's mine? That's my, that doesn't belong to God? That this, this is entirely mine. At that moment, we become like the tenants. We erase the bold line that separates creator from creation. We use and abuse the stuff and the people around us in order to maintain our ownership of that thing, our power over it. We lie to keep people's devotion. We maim and murder or neglect in order to keep our property. So that's one way to go. All right, that's one option. Good, pre- good sermon so far, right? How about some other options? Well, at the other end of the extreme is we could do the, the Francis of Assisi route. Uh, I've been talking about Francis a lot. I'm totally fascinated by him, I know. But um, here's what Francis did. He surrendered everything. He refused to own anything. He, did, he surrendered it all. He gave it all back. He didn't carry money for the second half of his life. He relinquished all of his possessions in order to identify with the poor and depend on God alone. It, it, it went to such extremes that Francis and his followers were often at risk. They were often sick. They were often in danger. And so his mentor says, hey, your little movement should, you guys should have a few things. (laughs) Like take a few possessions, you know, so that you can take care of each other. And Francis said, if we do that, we will decide we need to protect those possessions. If we do that, we will start competing with one another over who gets to control them. Francis knew the danger of that, and he refused it all. This is a pathway that I think some people need to walk. It's the rich young ruler pathway, right? This is what Jesus called the rich young ruler to do. And I'm not going to stand here and tell you that that's not what you're being called to do. That's another option. Third, 
we can love the owner of the property and serve him with the fields that you've been called to steward. We can cause his property to flourish. We can joyfully give him his produce when he comes calling for it, and we can receive whatever he leaves for us. This is the typical way that God calls his people to treat creation. We are called to be stewards of it. The question is how? How do we get into that mindset? The water that we swim in tells us that success is defined by having more and more. That's the message you will get the moment you walk out of these doors. Everything around you is telling you to own more, to have more power, to be the God of your own kingdom. Well, the first thing that I, I big surprise, here's, here's what I would recommend. Come regularly and participate in corporate worship. Because when we are together, we, are, we don't get our own way in this room. We join together and remember that there is a line between the creation and the creator. And we are reminded for an hour and a half on Sunday morning that it all belongs to him. There is not a single inch of all of creation over which Jesus does not shout, Mine! Mine. That's what, that's what we sing about. That's what we pray about. We remind each other of that. We set ourselves in line. And we need to do it regularly because we will forget by lunchtime whose it is. It's all his. And you may need to take drastic steps in order to arrive at that point. A few of you may have heard of Alan Barnhart. Has anyone here heard of Alan Barnhart? All right, let me tell you about Alan Barnhart. Alan Barnhart is the CEO of Barnhart Crane and Rigging. He grew up working in the steel erecting business that his father founded in Memphis, Tennessee in 1969. During high school and college, Alan and his brother Eric worked summers as iron workers and crane operators learning the business from the ground up. In college, Alan studied civil engineering, coursework that would serve him well after joining the, the business full-time in the early 80s. Barnhart Crane and Rigging has grown to be one of the largest heavy lift and heavy transport organizations in the United States. It has more than 40 locations across the country and a nationwide reputation for solving problems. Every year that Alan has been the CEO of Barnhart Crane and Rigging, it has grown by over 20% every single year. It's a massively successful company. But Alan's faith in God and his fear of affluence and greed caused him to cap his lifestyle. Alan and his brother Eric and their families decided to give 100% of their successful business to charity in order to keep wealth from taking over their lives. 50% of all the company earnings are donated immediately to charity. The remaining 50% is used to continue growing the business. In 2007, they gave the entire company to the National Christian Foundation. They still run its daily operations, but the brothers will never reap the accrued value 
of the company. They gave it all away. Why? I've heard Alan say, because it's not mine. It's not mine. Now that sounds drastic, but that is how to be a steward. Okay. We may take extreme measures like that, like Alan Barnhart or like Francis of Assisi, but I have bad news for you. No matter what, no matter how far you go, greed will follow you. It's, it's a pseudo-God in that way. I, you know, we like to say, no matter how far you wander, the good shepherd will find you. Well, no matter how far you go, greed is there waiting. I've been reading this biography of Francis of Assisi. That's why he keeps coming up. And here, here's the deal. Francis used to be the center of attention as a young man. He's a troubadour. He would sing. He, the ladies loved him. He was the, the life of the party. I mean, just crowds of young people followed him around town. And wherever he went, that's where the party was. And he loved it. He loved the attention. Well, after Francis has his conversion and changes entirely, he, he, he wants to be humble. He wants to identify with the poor. But everywhere Francis goes, his biographers note, he makes this big scene to show how humble he is. Like he goes into the, the, the big crowded party in order to make a pronouncement about what he's going to do with the poor. That's what Francis does. Do you see? Greed has followed Francis all the way. After he's given it all up, he still is hungry for attention. His vanity, his desire for reputation still follows him. Well, if even Francis with his extreme measures can't be free, what are we to do? Let's go back to the parable. The son comes and the tenants decide, let's kill him. Let's throw his body over the wall, and then this stuff will be ours. And they were partially correct. They were partially right. What happened? The tenants of the house, the tenants of the vineyard, did arrest and execute the son. They hung him on the cross. And as he's hanging on the cross, gasping for his last breath, Jesus utters a prayer about the tenants. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He knows that greed has so twisted their minds. They've become Gollum. And he's dying to set them free. Friends, before Paul tells us that greed is idolatry, he opens with the truth that we need. Christ, who is your life. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That simple phrase is our freedom. When something feels so central to us, we need to look it in the eye and say, Christ is my life. Friends, I, I love to preach. I love doing this. And look at the crowds I've drawn. Um, I could look at you and think, your interest in this sermon is my life. Your, your interest in me as a teacher is my life. And so I need to look at you and say, you're not my life. I love you, but you're not my life. 
Christ is my life. What's your thing? You need to look it in the eye and say, you're not my life. Christ is my life. And he becomes your life here. When he offers himself to us. And so I would invite you, church, to prepare your hearts for the table by recognizing what he has done for you. This is a call and response prayer. And uh, it's easy to just do it rote and routine. But Christ is your life. Let's celebrate like he's just arrived in Jerusalem. So church, is the Father with us? Is Christ among us? Is the Spirit here? This is our God. We are his people. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Church, on the same night that he was betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks. And he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them saying, drink this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. Jesus is Lord, and this is the feast of victory. Christ is alive forever. We're one body, so draw near with faith. Amen. And Christ is your life. So I would invite you, church, for all who are ready to let go of all of their ownership of everything else in their life and receive the, the the glorious reality that he has invited you to be a steward. Come and receive his body and his blood that is given for you.